Hello and welcome to My Dollarama's Top Picks. I'm Coco Green, armchair critic and aspiring academic with my co-host Abla Kondalop, film programmer, journalist, and researcher. In Top Picks, we discuss marginalization, resistance, and some of the isms in drama, documentary, mystery, and independent films and series. Now in its 11th year, My Die champions independent film and using the medium as a platform for underrepresented and oft-ignored voices. You can follow us on Twitter at My Dilarama, and if you like what we do, you can leave us a like or a comment on Apple Podcasts. Short link is mydie.link forward slash Apple and support us with either a one-time or monthly donation at mydie.link forward slash donate. You can also subscribe to our newsletter at mydie.link forward slash subscribe. Oh, we're on Spotify too. <laughs> <laughs> Not <Same> LinkedIn. <laughs> exactly. Well, we could be though um, at forward slash Spotify. We should think about that. Oh, let's not another platform to manage <laughs> another profile to upload. I know, I'm, th- I'm throwing it out there knowing full well I'm not going to manage it <laughs> yeah let's do let's do LinkedIn yeah <laughs> okay so this week we have anything we want to talk about apart from the main film well you know I watched a film I really like on Netflix called The White Tiger I really enjoyed that and I'm not sure if I was supposed to because after um And it's a 2021 film on Netflix, and it's about, synopsis, a rich Indian family's ambitious driver uses his wit and cunning to escape from poverty and rise to the top as an entrepreneur. So it's based on a book by the same name. And I looked it up, and I didn't, it's interesting, I didn't get those themes from it. So that's why I'm saying I'm not sure if I was supposed to like it, but I did. I liked it a lot, and I wasn't familiar with any of the actors, although I looked them up too, and they are all very famous. Oh, so who's in the... (laughs) Um, so the protagonist is Raj Kumar Rao. I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, and then the co-star who's the wife is Priyanka Chopra. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly either. And it's the debut of Adarsh Gurav, who's not famous because, you know, it's his first leading role. But the others are very famous, and it was so good um, because something interesting he says in the film that if you're poor, you only have two options, politics or crime. I'm like, ooh, that's true. (laughs) That's true. You've got two roads there. And it is about, yeah, the class system. And I think what makes it particularly disgusting, right, is that this family has, you know, an obscene amount of money and they can do more for him, but they just choose not to. And it's very reminiscent of uh, this documentary film about the prison industrial complex, but it's uh, by a white man. And he talks about it in relation to the family of the live-in domestic workers family. And talking about how they could have sent her to school they could have changed her life and they chose not to do that they were you know they were just yeah she takes care of us and that's what she does not thinking about what that means if she's taking care of us that means she's not taking care of her own family because she's living with them yeah and then the consequences of mass incarceration on her family which has been absolutely devastating and they were completely sheltered from that as a upper middle class white family So in this one, it brings all these issues more to the fore and looks through his options and how his family funds their life. And also they talk about how people are kept, you know, how the social order is kept. Because then, of course, the big question is, well, how is it that you have these contrasts, right? The servant class 
it has so little, how is it that they're not stealing? And how is it that they're a better protector of the wealthy class and the wealthy people themselves? It was almost like a, you know, like a script Malcolm X would have written or something, right? When he does his whole comparison between house and field Negroes. No, honestly, in talking about, yeah, the mentality of being part of the servant class so close to the master. So uh, I really enjoyed it. And I won't give it away how he ends up making his escape, but I just, he ends up committing crime to do it, but the way they set it up, it's like you root for him. It's like, yeah, it, you just ask the question of why more people don't do it, even though it's awful, but uh, in terms of the crime. So yeah, it's it's a good one. It reminded me of The Great Gatsby, and what if Gatsby had decided to stand up for himself instead of just throwing himself away because Daisy threw him away, right? It's like, Great Gatsby, he was part of a rich people's game. And instead of fighting back, he decided that he was just going to, yeah, he was just going to die. Or was he murdered? Was Great Gatsby murdered or did he kill himself? Was that left in the, up in the air? Because I thought he killed himself. I don't know. Actually, Have yeah. You watched now it? you, now you mention it. Did you watch Great, watch Great Gatsby? No, I read the book ages ago. Okay, a school thing. Okay, no, we, we all did that. We read it for school. But, yeah. but yes, that's Great Gatsby, right? Um can I just say, I read it because I thought it was a murder mystery and it wasn't. I was very disappointed. <laughs> so I'm just going to throw it out there because my parents had it and they, they put it away with all the Agatha Christie novels. So they fooled me into reading it. And I did expect, like, I, I actually pushed through till the end expecting like a twist or something. I was no, like 12. Us, part of the curriculum and it was, and of course I was taught this by a uh, very influential, you know, in terms of influential in my life, this... Um, he was a white teacher. Well, all my teachers were white. What am I saying? But he was different because he had actually been active in the civil rights movement. And it was so funny because we would tease him that we had a few jokes about him because one, he was very open about being like a socialist. And then, of course, there was a joke about him being a commie. Right. We joke about that. And then there was the joke that whatever civil rights movement was popular, he'd be a part of that. So his first wife was he was active in the civil rights movement. And so his first wife was black. And then they broke up. And his second wife, he got involved in <laughs> he got involved in like the Chicano movement. And so his second wife was Mexican-American. So that was a joke. <laughs> Anyway, uh, but the way he taught the book, it was all about, you know, the Gilded Age and inequality in the Roaring Twenties, you know, so yeah. it was taught to us in that context. So I've always understood the Great Gatsby. No, that's good. I wish I had that context. When um, I was 12, it didn't really speak to me. I didn't get the... Well, look at you, 12. No, I was 16 when I read that book. <laughs> look at you, fancy. No, I mean, my mom had lots of books around the house, but never the Great Gatsby. I mean... We had lots of young adult books because we used to have, I don't know if you had this in France or you yeah. know London, um, where we would have the scholastic magazines and it was just books. Mm -hmm. So you would order all of these books. Yeah, for a good deal. So they would give you a discount. And then if you ordered like 12, you would get a tote bag. And so <laughs> I always had things like that where anytime my mom received any sales paper for books, we got those books. No, I had I had a thing, but the, so I was I was here in the UK, but I had a subscription to sort of um, they were booklets. They were called Jabukin. I started reading them when I was about eight, um, and I stopped when I was about ten, I think. But at the um, at the the back of, on the back of them, they had like a comic strip that was uh, 
Like it was a serialised version of famous classical novels. Oh, that sounds Yeah, fun. made into a comic strip. It, it, so it was really, really fun. And it made me... That's what drove me to read Rebecca, Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca, for example. Um, you read that at 10? Yeah, I was 10 or 11. Oh my gosh. I remember. That, I was that, a, I was a massive reader. I loved reading and I loved mystery. So, yeah, I read I think I read that when I was 11. Did you ever read the uh, Choose Your Own Adventure books? I loved them. I loved them so much. Do you know this is where my tattoo comes from? I didn't even know you had a tattoo. Uh-huh. I'll show you next time on my wrist. The big mystery. It's from a <laughs> Choose Your Own Adventure book. <laughs> you had a tattoo that's pretty crazy i have never noticed that <laughs> no honestly okay no that's that's interesting okay you know i love your choose the choose your own adventure book. did you watch the uh black mirror episode where they had the choose your own adventure episode yeah what did you think about that because i liked it but people didn't like it uh, I, I thought it's a bit gimmicky the one where you yeah where you chose what cereals cereal he ate and yeah yeah the interactive <laughs> one yeah i did i thought it was a bit gimmicky i didn't see the point of that that was so nostalgic for me you guys stink you don't know how to have fun because it's not yeah but it wasn't as fun as the choose your own adventure because the difference was like between a it was very slight it was between like a small thing and another small thing it was inconsequential that's not true it, Sometimes it, it, are you going to go down the road you're going to climb up the tree are you going to look behind the rock or are you going to stay with your friends what are you saying they were not just small no oh, no I, what i mean no the charlie brooker thing the black mirror one the okay black okay I, I, I thought you were saying the choose your adventure no i loved i loved the books not. no exactly i loved the books because they would <laughs> the directions you would you would take the paths you would take would vary widely wildly yeah, between yeah. one and the other that's true the choices were but they did lead lead to big differences as you know well i'm guessing you didn't go through more than once it sounds like you went through once and you're like this garbage but if you went through more than once i tried all of them i tried all of them and i just didn't find them to be to be radically interesting or like different in an interesting way it felt Mm. pointless the plot wasn't interesting enough to carry that gosh i love choose your own adventure i tried reading it Again, I was just like, yeah, and it, I was like, oh, wow, I guess I'm not a child anymore. So we need that for adults. That could be a project we work on. We need to choose your own adventure series for adults. I'm sure they have that. Oh, yeah. Let's look it up. Well, I don't know. You know, maybe. But I feel like if that existed, would we not have heard about it when that came mm. out? I feel like it exists in the same world that escape rooms exist. <laughs> right? <laughs> Mostly geared at adults who like to role play. No, you know, my uh, my friend did that with her family and she said they wasted a lot of time because the kids didn't quite understand and the clues were too obscure. Yeah, well, don't go with kids. You have to go with fellow adults or you go to a kid's one. I think her stepdaughter at the time was like 18. So, you know, I mean, oh, I okay, not a kid thought, then. But no, so no, but they still struggled with it. So <laughs> I've never been myself, as you know, but they are anyway. fun. But that was the, uh, that was the, gosh, did you have a film? I don't even know how we got here talking about. I don't know. No, I didn't. So that's good. (laughs) It filled the time. (laughs) We can move on to a much more somber topic. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So Being Mortal is an episode on PBS's Frontline from 2015. That's when it first aired. And it explores the relationship between doctors and their patients nearing end of life. So it follows writer and surgeon Atul Gawande and 
I may have butchered this man's name. As he delves into the relationships doctors have with their patients as they're dying. So this film first came to my attention and I certainly feel like it was, you know, God showing me this film as I needed to see it when my aunt Sharon was dying, basically. And I found out at the last minute that, you know, she just had taken a turn for the worse, even though she'd always been terminal. So as soon as she was diagnosed, she was terminal. But she hadn't immediately taken so ill. And this film depicts that, right? You get people who are diagnosed as terminal, but they're still working. They're still walking around. And once they get their pain managed, they are living similar to how they were living prior to the uh, diagnosis. So um, I got a call and I decided to go home last minute because even though I had planned to go home in a few months, she I just thought she may not be there. Now, there was no expectation for me to come home because everyone understood like, ah, it's last minute, it's expensive. But it was just important for me to go. And on my way, I did find this film, which I watched. And I just thought it was so, so um, it, well done because the author and, uh, you know, the correspondent, so we say, of this film on PBS Frontline. He's a doctor. Both his parents are doctors. And his own father becomes ill. And his father's doctor starts saying things that are so absurd. I mean, one of the standout things is he told his father, um, you know, with this treatment, who knows, you could be playing tennis again in a few months. And everyone knows that's absurd because his father is dying. There is no going to, you know, there's no getting better, right? It's just managing the end of life. And through that, he could kind of see that he done the same thing to patients. So he starts off going back to, <laughs> going back to uh, the spouse of one of his patients to talk about how he said, so, you know, they're both like living in this fantasy that a treatment is going to extend life or treat, I should say, serve as a treatment instead of just alleviating pain and talking about like why they did that. Like, why do we allow our patients to be delusional? Why are we telling these lies? What does this say about doctor's training? And then in the bigger picture, what does this say about death? And how we as a society grapple with death. And it's one of those bizarre things like we all know we're going to die. And in the face of this, it becomes clear you're going to die. And yet everyone runs around like, well, no, there's got to be a miracle. There could be a miracle. And what that's about. So my grandmother did pass away a few weeks ago. And a couple of weeks before was she was in the same situation. And I saw what played out in my family, I guess, six years ago. Uh, play out again where you have people just in denial like well who says this is the end mm. <laughs> and I and similar to six years ago I have no idea how to respond to that because you're like I, I yeah I, I still don't know really what you say it's kind of like either you're on a page where you understand this is the end of someone's life or you don't and I don't know if there's a way to bring people on there like one of the doctors in the documentary was really good because she says that uh, the way she starts off is asking patients what they heard. And I think that's something that is a question that isn't asked. And I didn't even ask it. My, it, It's like, we just say, what did the doctor say? And when people are saying that, they're not saying what the doctor said. They're just saying what they heard, which can be totally different because they're using it. It's like their own filter of grief and false hope. So Lord knows what people actually hear.
because the stories I did end up uh, in the case of my grandmother, I did speak to the nursing assistant myself. And what she told me was very different from what my aunt was saying. Let me tell you that they were not the same thing. And I hadn't even thought to do it until, um, you know, my friend's a nurse and she just provided such good information and really just talked me through the whole thing, told me to do that because she said it's the only way you're going to find out what's what. Even after watching this documentary, I still didn't still didn't cross my mind to talk to someone directly. And it was very different what the nurse was telling me. So what did your how did your aunt interpret it then? You know, she was still very hopeful. I remember so that so after I watched this documentary film, right, um, I did send it to my so six years ago. I sent it to my family and everyone was like, why would you send us this? Like, this has nothing to do with our situation. So that's where they were. And when I finally made it to because I you know, I went home immediately. And my aunt was surprised to see me. And she said, oh, what are you doing here? I said, oh, I thought you might not be here if I came in a few months. And she looked at me and everyone's kind of looking at me. It's like, but isn't isn't that why? (laughs) Is that not why I'm here? So my aunt was certainly not accepting, no, that she was dying. No, she was not. I didn't expect her to, though. So I'm only talking about everyone else. I'm not talking about my aunt. And one thing I wanted to ask her, which I ultimately did not have the courage to ask her was like, was she scared? I was desperate to know, like, what does this feel like for you? But I, once I got home, I didn't have the courage to ask her. Um, But she was very much believing that anything was possible. And who says this is the end? Because I think part of it too, was they told her she had been dying for years. And it was only at that point where she's in hospice where she's like, well, I still could, you know, I still could see a few more months. And that was the thing when she was diagnosed, I must say, as terminal, they told her she had a few months. And then she surpassed that, right? She surpassed that. She was still working. So, and you see this in the film that that's, you know, the man who had brain cancer. That's why he couldn't accept it because he's still working. He's barbecuing. He just has some headaches. So how do you... How do you confront it? But everyone else, unfortunately, um, I felt like for a long time was still not able to accept that reality. I even had one hunt, for example. So when she first got diagnosed, I went to go see her, but uh, with my sister, but she was working, right? So we're at her house. We're waiting for her to get home from work. And we're there with my other aunt. And this aunt tells me, and, you know, she was totally serious. She said, that because she had actually gone with my aunt to the doctor when she received the prognosis. And she said, I don't think that she's really dying. This is God trying to get her attention. And if she changes, God will save her life. And my sister and I looked at each other and again, we're like, what do you say to something like that? Uh, And we're just like, huh? And we just both didn't know what to say. And you know me, I don't know how to shut up. I was totally at loss for words because it was just, how do you get to that belief where you are so unwilling to accept that she's dying? And the interesting thing too, and I I was telling my um, other aunt about this uh, when my grandmother was um, in the hospital and she was one who, she was one of the aunts who was on the page. Really only she and my mom were on the page that my grandmother was dying, right? Um, I was telling her that when my grandfather passed away in 2004, we were at the house, you know, sorting through his things. And my aunt who passed away did tell me, she said, I'm going to be the next one to die. And I was like, why would you say that? And she's like, I just feel like that. And she was.
Yeah, she was. That's my aunt who passed away um, about six years ago. I wouldn't say years ago. Um, but yeah, that's what she told me. And I just, I, I didn't know what to make of it at the time when she said that. But I also thought she was in grief because her father just died. So I didn't pay too much attention. And even she did not have, could not explain why she felt that way. She just said, I feel that. That was her extent of an explanation. But it was she. And as my grandmother um, and my mom, you know, in terms of thinking it was my grandmother's end of life, um, I would say maybe five weeks ago, six weeks ago, my mom started saying that my grandmother was talking to her father and her sister. So she felt like it was really the end this time because she was talking to, you know, telling them she was okay, even though she was in pain, like, I'm okay. Um, And she hadn't been talking to them before. It's like signs of, yeah, the signs of death. So what did you think of the documentary, Abla? I found it quite a hard watch, actually, um, at first. And I thought there was a, a bit of a tonal shift halfway through. I don't know if you felt that, but the first half I felt was quite dry and I was very clinical. And I didn't really see see it coming that it gets so intimate and personal, which in a way, which was very good and very brave. But in a way, I found that quite harrowing to watch. Um, yeah, so I kind of had to push through and force myself not to um, open another window and put some cartoons on or something to alleviate the... The heaviness. It was sad. I, f- I found it really upsetting, actually, because they're questions that, y- yeah, we we shy away from asking. But yeah, I I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm conflict. I think it's very important that it's made and it's shown and it's and these things are talked about quite openly. Um, but at the same time, you can't help but just seeing yourself, or your family in that situation and think oh, I would just wouldn't cope like this. What do you mean? Which part? Well, which way? Because they showed a few different families. So you have, um, you know, the doctor's family, right? Where they are, yeah. I think, more realistic. You know, the father saying what he wants, what he doesn't want. But they don't seem to be, they seem to be protesting that internally and not actually saying these things out loud. Yeah, yeah. Um, And then you have the couple with the brain cancer, right? And then the doctor. I wasn't too sure about the doctor who had the patient with the brain cancer because she seemed to say one thing when she was talking with the correspondent and then another thing to the patient um which one's that hang on the name escapes me oh i don't remember her name either but um because one of the things he says right the patient with the brain cancer is that or he's a brain was a brain cancer brain tumor is that the same thing well anyway i mean he's the he's the one i'm referring to Oh, were you? Okay. Wait, that so, he eventually passes away before. Oh, well, everyone dies in this in this film. Everybody dies. Who? Yeah, no, everyone dies in this <laughs> no, film. There's a bit at the end where they go over the, like he's already died and they talk about that process. Um, n- no, so what I'm am I thinking of. You're thinking of the older man who was dying because they talked to his wife afterwards. Yes. Um, but no, not that. So the middle-aged couple, and okay, whose yeah. sister had already died of cancer, also kind of suddenly. So that was crazy. And he was saying, like, he was, he he said something like he was sick of her optimism, right? Like he just, so he, everyone's all very polite when they're in front, but he's just like, I can't stand mm-hmm. it. Like she yeah. makes things harder for me. And I think that's a really awkward watch. That's the thing. It's like everyone's really uncomfortable communicating openly and it makes you as a viewer feel like you. it's hard to negotiate your place in that conversation. I thought it was really interesting. I mean, the only 
doctor, I think, who did it well was the woman. And they didn't really because they showed her patient at the end, right? When her patient yeah. has a couple weeks left and she's just like, Oh, but I promised my granddaughter I'd take her to Disney world. It's like, mm, mm. Well, that's uh, but, but I thought she was the most direct saying like, right, this is a gift because now you can say whatever goodbyes you need to say and you need to do it now. Um, and trying to do her soft thing, like, you were supposed to go home, but I think it'd be better if you were here so we can look after you, right? So I feel like she tried to coax them coax them more, whereas the others were like deer in headlights. Like, the doctors almost reverted to these sort of... It, I just don't think they did a good job. And even the one with that same patient, right? The the Because she had the 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 doctor who came in to deliver the end of life news but her main doctor and he said like part of that is he feels like a failure because he can't save her even though it's like but that's inevitable so it's like the doctors are then totally they're out of place out of their depth because it's like well I can't save you anymore so now I don't know what my purpose is did you feel that from the doctors in the documentary yes I didn't feel that from um, um, from Goende, though. I well, but they didn't show him with his patient. They, they kind of showed him at the end, right? But no, I, I think I think uh, he was actually like the doctor, his father's doctor, because when he's talking to the patient's widower, they yeah. were in delusional speak, too, saying like, oh, like, who knows what this treatment can do? And he didn't yeah. remember saying it. That was the thing. He didn't remember, but the patient's widower remembered him saying it. Yes. But he admitted that it would be something he would say because <laughs> he didn't know what else to say. But I thought what I thought was really um, interesting that he talked about was the quality of end of life care. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that was probably like the take home message of the um, of the documentary was the value we should attach to that period. And we don't really I think a mix because of a mix of you know the usual is cut cutting costs, but also because of that awkwardness around death and around um, accepting that there's nothing that can be done. This is a hospice, so mm -hmm. we just need to ensure that. The, yeah, it's the basically the value attached the quality of life towards uh, the end, and I thought that was just a really important point to make. Um, I don't. I remember him mentioning, but I can't remember what he said about um, things like euthanasia, mm -hmm. where he, I think his view was that overall, a good, um, a good care, good quality care in a hospice was probably the way to go. It was like the best um, end of life model you could you could uh, you could implement see I was left unclear about that I ended up watching a clip of him having that discussion with someone because he okay so I was watching a talk that he was giving and it was about this young woman who she was diagnosed with some terminal disease and she said that she was choosing to end her own life and he said the tragedy in that was that she did not trust mm -hmm. her health care providers to do exactly what you're talking about, to provide a quality end of life care. So I think it's like people don't even really know what that looks like. And I'm not even too clear myself. 
about what quality end of care life looks like. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Yeah, then you get into like really murky waters where who do you trust? Um, who signs off on things? Medical professionals or member of, members of your family? Which brings to mind the recent film with um, Rosamund Pike. I don't know if you've seen it. I haven't myself, but I will. Uh, what's it called? It's It's literally just come out. I care a lot. I've not heard of that one. You've not heard of it? Mm-mm. It's a 2020 film. It was at the Toronto International Film Festival. Um, and I think it's it's on Netflix. Three, streaming now I through. look and apparently I can watch on Prime for free. And in the Prime. subscription. Hey, oh. <laughs> oh. I can't wait. I love free movies. Yeah. And it's um, it's the story of a woman who's essentially a scammer who uh, manages to convince the local authorities to give her guardianship mm-hmm. over um, elderly people um, who she says can't take care of themselves so that she then has the legal right to decide what happens to them. Oh no, guardianship is a thing, yes, and it is a place for scammers because yeah. once you get control you can charge extortionate rates for letter writing and phone calls and Yeah, but it's mad. I had no idea. I mean, I can imagine, but I had no idea it was done to this extent. Yeah, they did a documentary on Netflix about that. Anyway, go ahead. Well, that's what it it brings to mind, that at that period, it's quite a vulnerable one, depending on, like, how compass you are, who's in charge of um, of your legal rights, do you have guardianship? Is your family responsible for you? Are medical professionals <laughs> responsible for you? So I do think that, like, it's... And again, I thought that would be much more regulated than it is, and it seems to be full of grey areas. It does. And it. I thought I'd, though, included you in that email, because I did send that email out a few weeks ago about getting your end-of-life care in order. Did I send that to you? No. Oh, <laughs> why? <laughs> Are we already on that? <laughs> Of course we're on that. Yes, you need to get that in order because the problem is like you need to be clear about what you want. Um, and, and that's the thing. Like I know what both my parents want, but I know my dad at least has put that in writing. I think his brother's in charge to make these sorts of decisions. Um, but I know what my mom wants, but she's not signed any paperwork. Right. But I mean, yeah. luckily, you know, my sister and I are fine to let her die. We don't I mean, want her to live on pa- tubes and things. By paperwork, do you mean a will? No, oh, no, no. You- no. It's these sort of advanced directives about, do you want a feeding tube? Do you want to be on life support? How long do you want to be in a coma? Those kinds of things. And you also list the people who make those decisions, but you list about four of them. So then in case one person is incapacitated, so you know, you and Chris Mm -hmm. get in an accident together, who's going to be the person after that? And then who's going to be the person after that? And it's important to have all that in order and make sure that these are people who are going to do what you want versus what's going to make them feel better. Because you know, you'll end up in a coma for 20 years. And if you don't want that, you need to be very clear, like, I give it two months. And if I'm not turning around, let me go. (laughs) Or or not, you know, or if you want to be the person on, you know, no judgment, if if you want to be that way for 20 years. But the point is, you have to really know what you want, because even though statistically, right, we'll die in our 70s, maybe me a bit lower because I'm black, but nevertheless, it's, possible right we could go sooner in a car accident 
Or one time I sent this message to my mom. (laughs) I said, um, you know, these are the details of my friends in case one of my one night stands goes horribly wrong. (laughs) She thought it was funny, but um, other people didn't. (laughs) They were like, was that your mom? I was like, of course that was my mom. She knows we're just having fun. But anything's possible. And that's why you just want people to know what your final wishes are. And I just think it's important. And it came up, which is why I sent it out a few weeks ago. I don't know why I didn't include you. was because, you know, in terms of my grandmother, it's just like, well, I mean, I don't know what my aunts knew. But, you know, like I said, my mom doesn't have that signed paperwork in order. And my friends don't either. And we all should. Like, there's no reason why we shouldn't get that notarized and, and then everybody's clear. Yeah, because even then I found out, I don't know if I told you about that, but I was planning to put my mom in this place in Marin where you just, uh, you don't get preserved, right? So no formaldehyde, they just put you in the refrigerator and then they wrap you in a shroud and they put you in the ground and then you get a tree on top for some extra money. (laughs) And then it came up, right? Because my grandmother passed away and my mom's like, no, I'd rather be cremated. I'm like, but this is better for the environment. She's like, no, I don't think, I think I want my ashes spread. And see, look, now we're clear because I would have put her there. Well, as long as it's like ratified and regulated, it feels like, yeah, I'm talking about the cases where it's not clear cut. And people take advantage and stuff. But even but even when people don't take advantage, right? But I think it's the other question, you know, in terms of this documentary, like we don't talk about how people want to end their life or how people want to be buried. Like I remember my aunt who passed away. She didn't go to my uncle's funeral because he wanted to be cremated and my grandparents buried him. And that was her protest. She was like, no, I'm not participating because he didn't want that. So it's like, but we don't talk about that. Like we don't make it part of our conversation where I know how you want to spend the end of your life. I mean, not that I would not that I'd be making those decisions, but if you spoken to Chris about that, like what happens if and how you yeah. want to live? Well, we've not talked about it, no. See, and that's the thing. We should be talking yeah. about it. Okay. And we don't because then I think that's part of the problem of why when then it becomes time to talk about death, all we can talk about are miracles and how we could live. It's like, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, and, and that's what's so more bizarre is that we all know we're going to die. So it's like, why are we planning for miracles, right? Which isn't guaranteed, whereas death is guaranteed and we're not planning for that. Yeah. Yeah. So what's that about? Well, that's why I thought the documentary was good in the sense that it sparked that kind of discussion and really highlighted that. Well, we've had that all the time in my family, I must say. Like, I was made fun of years ago because I found out, and this is, you know, this is before I knew about the, you know, the shroud in the ground place. Yeah. Because I did know for, you know, many years that my mom wanted to be cremated. But before you had, to, and even now, you have to put someone in a coffin to cremate them. So I had recently learned about a $300 cardboard box that you could use as a coffin money saver. And I was so excited. And then people thought I was awkward. They're like, you're going to put your mom in a cardboard box? I'm like, uh, it won't be my mother. You know, she'll be dead, right? <laughs> I thought I was trying to help people out, trying to say like, wow, look, we've got this cheaper way. And then I was turned into a monster. And they came up with this really mean nickname for me. I'm like, well, <laughs> like, they act like my mother, I was going to retire her in a cardboard box there instead of, <laughs> you know what I mean? Instead of a nursing home, I'm going to put you in a cardboard box. Or instead of hospice, you're going in a cardboard box. <laughs> That's honestly, people were really like, why would you put your mother in that? It's like, you know, she's going to be cremated, right? Like, what's everyone saying? So 
Um, well, what did you think of the second half? Because you said you thought the first half was dry. What was it that you thought of the second half? A little bit. Um, the, it wasn't so much the tone of the documentary, I guess. It's the people that it focused on. I think, am I right? I mean, I watched it um, over a week ago, but the first half was mostly focused on, on. Um, sorry, I forgot his name. On, um, on the two Gawande and his family, right? Well, kind of, and his own experience as a doctor. Yeah, that's it. So. Yeah. Yeah, which I thought, exactly, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, but it was very much, you know, quite clinical in a way. Um, mm. And I thought that's what the whole documentary would be like. And then it just basically shows you people going through this um, end of life journey. I thought, yeah, I thought, <clears throat> again, I thought it was just really like an, both an uncomfortable watch because it's hard not to identify with the families. But at the same time, they were given good quality care. So, yeah, I just thought, I mean, I, yeah, I, apart from I don't know to what extent um, this can be like reproduced elsewhere. Do you see what I mean? Like I thought in that particular setup, they're being really looked after and stuff. But yeah, that, that's what should happen everywhere. But see, not always, because I think so. He opens it right talking about, uh, you know, with one of his his patients with or his ex patients widower. And the thing that he talked about, right, was and this was a theme throughout the film, is that when there's a trade off sometimes, depending on people's prognosis. And the thing that happened with his wife was that they were busy trying to extend her life that it took away from her quality of life. So the treatment for the cancer was made her so sick. He's like, ah, had we known that and maybe thought more about that she wasn't going to survive anyway, right? So it was all about extending her life, not curing her. Would we, if we'd known that, would we have spent our time having a better end of lifetime together as a couple? Right. Yeah. That's versus her spending okay. that time sick just to have more time. But it was like that wasn't quality time because she was so ill from the treatment. Yeah. And, and that's what, what hit where his position was unclear, trade-off. right? Well, I think I think his I think his is what you said before, that it is about having a quality end of life if that's what you want. So it's like the patients need to understand that trade off. And then you have to find out what their priorities are. So is your priority to enjoy your final days as much as possible and be in as little pain as possible? Or would you prefer to be sick with treatment potentially, but have another few months? Yeah. And then you have to decide what your priorities are. But that wasn't presented to them because they're just obsessed with keeping you alive as long no, as exactly. possible and that's it where when it becomes tricky as to how much you're competent to discuss th- those things that are happening to you or not and I mean, even if you if you put the paperwork in order be competent you mean because of the fear or? uh no generally mentally competent i mean it to be honest it doesn't apply so much to the people in this documentary but uh to someone who's not all there anymore well, see, this is why we have to have the conversations now. Yeah, because but, but then that, they could Yeah, but you're not you. in that situation. You're having that conversation much, much sooner than you would be when you find yourself in that situation. So you don't know how you would react, how your the things you want to happen might change. That, well, then you the change the document. That's yeah, why. Yeah, but then by that time, you might not be 
mentally competent to do well, that. Well, then you've got to go with what's on paper. That's <laughs> okay. all anybody could do for you. But but people don't even have that. Like because no one's thinking about that. Well, I shouldn't say no one. Because not enough of us are thinking about that, then that's what you're left with. Then, like you're saying, if you're incompetent, then your spouse is left to decide for you, okay, what do I think they want? Which is hard for really, yeah. if, if, if anything, you're that, then you're not mentally competent because you're losing your spouse. So how much are you thinking what they want versus mm. your own grief? Yeah, well, that's it. I think the scenarios portrayed in the documentary were in a way quite ideal. And I wish that it would be this kind of comforting and caring all the time. But it's it's quite murky. There, there are a lot of um, grey areas when it comes to end of life, you know, not only to do with just like malpractice or greed or logistics or whatever, but simply mm -hmm. because of this issue of communication, of uh, deciding in advance about things that happen later in your life, um, of people not being mentally or emotionally prepared to deal with the consequences. All these things play a role in how the how it finally unfolds. Um, no, yeah, I don't think, and I think don't think even with you having all of those advanced directives, I think how you feel at the time could also change. Which isn't yeah. to say then if you if you're mentally competent, you can't of course change what's there because <laughs> you know that's all changeable. It's not like once you sign it, nope, 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 you said it, you said it. <laughs> Although you know that does remind me of my grandmother. I remember one time I was um, I was mad about uh, my dad about something, and I was complaining to her, and she said. Um, well, you said you didn't need a dad. I said, when did I say that? She said, you said it when you were three. <laughs> she, said, <laughs> she said, you said, she said, you were right there, you know, because we were at her house. You were right there, like pointing to her uh, foyer. Yeah. And you said, I don't need no daddy. I said, big mommy, that does not count. Well, you said so it. it. commits <laughs> the rest of your life. <laughs> Exactly. You're not able to change your mind. What's you say? And Lord knows the context. What three-year-old even says that? I don't even know what that was about. Uh, but gosh, hilarious. Uh, but I digress. Um, but even to think about those issues, and it's, I think it's a hard one, though. I mean, I would hope that I would choose a comfortable death over extending my life but that's the thing yep. who knows if you have a bunch of unfinished business depending on where you are in your life you may say no honestly, yeah, maybe though, no right? exactly exactly like no no i want to hold on until i can reconcile with my daughter right yeah yeah that's it you never know what might happen and you're making all those decisions much earlier yeah and you hear stories like that right when people say it's you know when a certain person visits them in the hospital room and tells them they can die then they can die it's like that sort of um, emotional and spiritual side to death. It isn't just about your physical body. Like people do hold on. It's like, you know, they'll let go. If they, they think they can. So it's about, um, you know, I also think it's different depending on what role you have in your family. Like, are you the person, the glue holding the family together? Or were you the prodigal son or daughter who's torn it apart over the years, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that's um, that's all we've got time for, I think. Do you want to say any conclusive words about it? No, well, I just think I encourage people to watch it. And I think, um, you know, don't just wait until because I both times I watched it again, actually it came up for me when, as I said, my grandmother was told she would, um, you know, my mom called me and told me that my grandmother just had a little, um, you know, that it, it wasn't looking good. I watched it again. And I'm glad I did. Although I think I should watch it when someone 
close to me is not dying. So yeah, I encourage you to watch it and to just think about how we are coping with dying and death and uh, yeah, our fear of the inevitable. Well, well, that's it from us for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Please leave us any comments and feedback via Twitter or on our website, mydialorama.org.uk. Have a lovely week.